Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about the new Quentin Tarantino film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. The film is two hours and 45 minutes, and honestly, we've been waiting a little while for it, so that's the only movie we're talking about this week. So, uh, the first half, we're going to talk about that. We're going to get into a little bit about Tarantino, and we might swing back around and talk some more spoiler stuff. We haven't really decided. We're going to see how the first segment goes. And before we get to all of that, we need to talk about the news. First things first, Disney smashes its own global <laughs> box office record. This may not come as a surprise, but it's certainly a milestone worth talking about. Andy, what do you know about this? Um, so, yes, this past weekend, Disney passed its record set in 2016 of passing 7.6 billion at the boxes boxes box office for the year what's amazing is that the year is only about half over and we still have five more months left and we have big titles including frozen 2 the maleficent sequel and of course the finale in the star wars well legend finale in the star wars saga the rise of skywalker um, and they all also crossed over $5 billion, uh, for the year overseas. So lots of firsts. It's worth mentioning that this year uh, Disney acquired 21st Century Fox and their film assets. Due to that, Disney now owns over 40% of the domestic market share. I don't know what exactly that means, but its closest competitors, as far as entertainment goes, are Warner Brothers and Universal, which each hold about 13%. So Disney's doing... Great. They did have some stumbles, all right? They did Dumbo earlier this year. That wasn't great. They did the X-Men spinoff Dark Phoenix out of uh, the 21st Century Fox Studios. But overall, they got a lot going for them. Uh, it has been a tremendous year for Disney. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it, it's both great for cinema and also it's it's worrying that this giant company owns so many properties and that their films completely dominate the box office. And we, and we enjoy the majorities uh, of these. I mean, we've seen Avengers Endgame, Captain Marvel, Aladdin, the Lion King, Toy Story four. These are all really good movies and, and they're making so much money, but it, it is a little worried how much power they control creatively. It is like, I know Disney's a, a very, you know, heartwarming family company, but like ultimately it's not good for anybody to have this much power, good or bad. All right. Right or wrong. They're going to make decisions that ultimately people start to disagree with. I feel that way about how often star Wars movies are coming out or the, the new reboots, the live action stuff, right? The remakes like Aladdin and the lion King or them making eight avatar movies to come out in the next 10 years or whatever. Like, you know, it's it's not all that glitters is gold, and, and I like Disney fine, but, you know, this is scary stuff. It's scary stuff when one com- company controls this much entertainment going into a country. It's a, it's a, it's a frightening thing, I think. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The next thing we should talk about, light news week this week, so this is our last story. Speaking of the box office, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood rides to $40 million in its opening weekend, but can't catch Disney's Lion King at $76 million. <laughs> There's that pesky Disney again. You just can't yeah, get rid of them. Exactly. Um, so this was the second biggest opening for Quentin Tarantino behind uh, 2009's uh, Inglorious Bastards. Bastards, which opened to $38 million. Uh, so a really solid opening for Tarantino, um, which is, it's an R-rated, you know, super philosophical indie indie film, essentially, by Natur. So that's a great opening for him. We'll see if it has legs. It The film did cost uh, around $90 million to produce, so it's still got a long ways to go before it's a, a profitable feature. 
You know, Lion King is coming up right now on $1 billion at the global box office. That's pretty big. And I don't want to say, well, an R-rated feature should be able to go toe-to-toe with that. It's the Lion King, and it's Disney, and I get that. But I'm a little bummed. I'm a little bummed, right? That, like, you know, this is a bold cinema podcast. We talk about bold cinema. And I would argue that Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is bold cinema. We'll talk more about that in a review coming up. But... I, you know, I, I appreciate variety at the box office. And, like, I'll, I think I'll always be a little frustrated seeing a remake or a reboot or, or just a rehash of something that came before do so much better than an original film, you know? Rating with, withstanding. Yeah, I mean, people constantly uh, complain about sequels and franchises and remakes and reboots, but they're super safe bests, and if anything... They may be even more lucrative than their original properties. So, uh, I mean, what what do you expect? Right. Um, there's a lot more stats in here about the kind of folks buying tickets for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, whether it's skews male or female. Skews male, just in case you didn't know. Um, but ultimately, like, I, I you know, I think the writing's on the wall, right? It is what it is. Like, it it's just not going to do as well as something like The Lion King, even going into its second week. The Lion King, I mean. Um, bummer, but again, Disney is killing it this year, and they're going to keep killing it. Uh, hopefully, other movies like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood won't get washed up on the shore because of it. You know what I mean? Right. And with that, we should talk about our feature film this week. It's been a minute since we've done only one film on a show. I think the last one I think was Avengers Endgame, so I'm excited to talk about this. Andy has graciously agreed to take the very condensed summary. Andy, please take it away. Once upon a time in Hollywood. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is, of course, Quentin Tarantino's ninth film, of which he has promised to only make one more, so we'll see if that comes true or not. It stars Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio in the lead roles, along with um, Margot Robbie uh, playing Sharon Tate. They play... Uh, I'll start with Leonardo DiCaprio. He plays Rick Dalton, who is Jake Cahill on TV, who's uh, uh, a TV... Uh, cop you know bounty law he's he is kind of the epitome of 50s 60s tv icon he is he is the good guy he is john wayne on steroids um (laughs) and then brad pitt is his stuntman but more accurately he's just kind of his chauffeur his his gopher his uh, guy who drives him around because he's has too many duis and can't drive himself um and we find them in the kind of twilight of of rick dalton's uh career he is no longer a leading man. He is getting fewer and fewer and fewer roles. And the the movie starts with a meeting with um oh I can't remember his name. Uh Al Pacino. Thank you, Al Pacino's character. Um who's who's saying, Oh, you're being cast to play the villain, that's great. Except now you're you're turning into the villain on TV and soon you're not just not going to get called anymore. And so what you need to do is go to Italy and make a bunch of these spaghetti westerns that people are making over there. And you're going to make a ton of money. It's going to be great. And uh, DiCaprio sees this at, as the the nail in the coffin that he's he's washed up. It's over. He's failing. And so the rest of the film is him you know, trying to, to kind of recapture the success of his career. Um, in the meantime, we have a number of other storylines that, that happen. We have Sharon Tate 
or sorry, Margot Robbie as a young Sharon Tite, uh, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, um, as a uh, sorry young new actress, and then we also, of course, have the um, the Manson cult um, out at Spawn Ranch, who is going to be crucial uh, to kind of what happens in the film. Um, it's a film about the Hollywood golden age in the 50s and 60s when anything was possible and how in in real life it all kind of came crashing down in August of 1969 with the horrific Manson murders um, in in Hollywood. Um, there's a ton in this movie. It's two, <laughs> two and a half hours long, more over two and a half hours long. It is very different from any of other Tarantino's work and we're going to get into it and uh, see what works and what doesn't. Uh, so a lot to unpack. Uh, it is a long flick and that's a great place to get started. Um, two hours, 45, I think is the total runtime and how, uh, <laughs> I, what's supposed to, I, I guess the best place to go. Andy, uh, what did you think of once upon a time? Hollywood? <laughs> um, so I loved it because I love this, this kind of film. This is Tarantino at his most restrained and his most mature because Tarantino has been known to be uh, self-indulgent, overindulgent. Um, the Hateful Eight was probably the epitome of that. Tarantino loves writing tons of dialogue and having long scenes for, you know, 10 minutes where characters just talk and it's all in one shot. Um, and he, he doesn't do that in this film. He's very restrained. He doesn't have these incredibly long shots of dialogue. He also, there is violence in this movie because his films are known for gratuitous violence. That's dialed back as well. We don't get all the kind of fight scenes and shoot 'em ups that we get in, in his previous work. It's much more about this phil- this philosophical um, love letter to Hollywood about its golden era and kind of the end of it and the start of an, a new one. It's a very different film. And we see this uh, in our characters, with which we have brilliant performances all around. Um, I don't want to say too, I don't want to say too much. <laughs> yes. uh, but 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 I I really enjoyed it. I I thought it was his most mature film and and I think it's um deeply philosophical. It is deeply divisive. Uh, people have hated it, people have loved it, and I I think it's a great film and I think that's why I, you know, we've said so many times on this show that enjoying cinema is all about uh the expectations you bring and I think people that haven't enjoyed it thought they were going to go see Django Unchained or Kill Bill or Inglorious Bastards. That's what they were waiting for. And it's not that kind of film. I agree. <laughs> I, uh, I think this is a different, a, a, I think a more restrained Tarantino is a fine place to start. This movie is coming off the heels of his eighth film, which is, um, the hateful eight, the hateful eight, man, this is a lot of movie to talk about. I'm glad we're only doing this one this week. Uh, which was a fairly violent film, arguably his most violent. This mm-hmm. one, maybe not so much. Uh, there's definitely still some t- Tarantino hallmarks. Uh, you know that's important. But you're right. Like the dialogue, the violence, it's all just dialed back a hair, um, and it doesn't hurt it. In fact, if anything, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has an energy to it. It's got a movement, and it's fast, and it comes at you quick. And I love it. The music is moving and it goes and it keeps, you know, it's got a, it's got a high beat per minute and it just, it just keeps going one after another and you stay tuned in, you stay plugged in. And whenever it starts to get slow, whenever you feel like things are, are really starting to dip, it will immediately change to another plot line. It will pull some kind of editing trick uh, to get you back in the chair or it'll tweak continuity and, and make sure you're s- staying tuned in. And I love it. 
I never even check my watch. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it, it, which is a compelling thing, and 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 that doesn't happen all the time. And I want to talk about why that is. So, what's the best place? To dig into this, I guess the handful of plot lines. Uh, yeah, there's a few. Yes, and and okay. the one one criticism I have seen people have said nothing happens in this movie. This movie is, isn't about anything. It doesn't have any narrative. That is completely false. It is a very mature and complex movie, and it's easy to go over the the heads of philistines and heretics everywhere. <laughs> um, no, so so like I said at the beginning, we have Leonardo DiCaprio feeling like he's washed up. He's no longer Jake Cahill, the leading man on Bounty Law, and you know we get these great odes to 1950s TV with DiCaprio in black and white, and the you know the banner going up on screen. It's great, and, and again, all these things are tributes to that time, which is very different because Tarantino often you know uh, pays homage to films of the 50s and 60s, and I feel this is very much. Um, an homage towards TV of the 50s and 60s. But he he decides to um, kind of take this role as a villain on, uh, on a pilot episode, and he's really, really concerned about it, and he really wants to learn his lines, do the best he can, because he does not want to fade into the limelight. Um, and so we get a number of great scenes of him preparing for these roles, for him go- going through it. There's a brilliant scene uh, with a young a- actress named, um, oh, I'm not going to be able to find it. Oh, uh, I don't <laughs> have her name. Yeah, she's great, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, well, she's, she's a child actress. She's like eight, um, and she's brilliant. And, and she plays a foil to him. They have this great scene when they're on set where she's eight years old. She's reading a book about acting and she's like, Oh, when the actor prepares this, when the actor prepares that, like she's totally into this. And he, Julia butters is her name. Thank you. Julia Um, butters, you know, and Tarantino's at the opposite end. He's, he's, you know, his success is fading and he's trying to recapture it. So it's a, it's a, there's a lot of that, that brilliance of, of the legend I was versus the person I, I am now and trying to recapture that. Um, so that that's a long plot line, and you know we ha- we have a sequence where he does that, and where he eventually does go to Italy to film some uh, some spaghetti westerns as well. Like I said, uh, there's go, go ahead. There's so much going. I don't on. I don't know if I should jump in here. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, while you've got Rick Dalton uh, struggling to um, kind of find himself in 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 a world that he feels like sees him as a has been, you have. His kind of chauffeur, uh, I'd say sidekick, but really his gopher, uh, Cliff Booth, played wonderfully by Brad Pitt, who is this very charming fifth uh, man in his 50s, I'd say, stunt man who looks great and is smart and can fight, and he's got everything going for him in the world. Like, he, he's, he's, he's Mr. Boy Scout, but he's got an oddly... Curious past, uh, which has led him to living in a trailer and driving a crappy car, which is a perfect foil for our man Rick Dalton, who he is, again, stuntman for. He is consistently just outside the limelight, but he's every bit as worthy of it as Rick Dalton is. He just doesn't seem to want it. He seems to enjoy his life as a, yeah. a kind of layabout. That's Yeah, that's a, a perfect uh, summary of Brad Pitt's character, who is uh, Cliff Booth. Um Cliff is enjoying the day. He is enjoying his life as it is, which compared to Rick Dalton, I mean, Rick Dalton 
lives on Cielo Drives. He lives in Beverly Hills or where, wherever that is. Like he's a movie star. Every people know who he is. Like he has he bought a house in in Hollywood or in you know wherever expensive it must be. Cliff Booth is living in a trailer behind uh, a drive-in. You know, but but Cliff but he but he's loving it. I mean, he doesn't love it, but he's he's enjoying what he has. He's enjoying the moment. He's not worried about how things were. You don't even get any backstory. You don't know. He's enjoying how things are, and so he he doesn't have this inner turmoil of like, I've lost it. I'm washed up. He's like, man, it's it's cool, man. We're good. Um, yeah. And, and and like we said, when we uh, Margot Robbie's character Sharon Tate, who doesn't speak much in this film, um she's at the beginning she's again kind of a foil to DiCaprio she's at the beginning of her career she's beginning to be known and recognized there's a scene where she goes into uh, a screening of the Wrecking Crew so she can watch herself on screen and you know uh, she when other people laugh at her jokes and they see her on screen that you know she she's really digging she's totally in love with being a Hollywood star um and and again, so it's about the rising and falling of, of different stars, of different legends, and you have Brad Pitt that's just waltzing through life, like he's he's not worried about that, about his stardom or his success because he has none. <laughs> right, and all of this is of course set in the backdrop of 1969 Hollywood, uh, leading up to Manson family murders, which is exactly what you said at the beginning of this: the turn in Hollywood when things were suddenly changed. And it was like, oh man, you know, maybe this isn't the way it should be. Glamour is not respected. Like, it 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 was just at the turn of the seventies. Like, things are just about to change. Things are just about to to, mm-hmm. to be different. Um, and it's such a perfect little time capsule for that. Uh, you know, Tarantino is very sp- specific about nailing. Um, you know, things that are, that are true to life on camera and doing his research and finding radio stations that sound correct and billboards and working over Hollywood Boulevard. I got a friend who lives out in California and he knows some people who live around where this was shot. He said they shot down street. They shut down streets for like weeks to film this movie, like without hesitation or remorse. Like I'm doing it right and authentic <laughs> and I'm using as little CGI as possible. And it shows it really helps you fall into the world of the film. The setting is, is so well done. The costuming and the feeling of it is is tremendous. Really helps you get into it. Right. Um, I was I was going to continue with with Cliff Booth, uh, his kind of storyline. At one point, he sees this hippie kind of on the street hitchhiking and he comes across her several times and f- eventually decides to, you know, give her a lift um, where out to Spawn Ranch where the, uh, you know, the Manson cult is yes and and coincidentally he knows the spawn ranch because he had shot some uh some films out there as, as a stuntman uh so he's out there now and it's a completely different place you know there's a bunch of hippies living in there there's you know like three men and 20 women it's one of those situations and they seem to be giving horse uh horse riding trails to tourists right tourists, um, yeah. and this is a very interesting part of the um of of the movie, and again, it has that real authentic look. The way like the clothes are, the sets, and we get we get a number of brilliant shots with these people on horseback that are clearly reminiscent of the glory days of 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 the western. Um, and it's a really interesting part of what this represents because I think this is also part of you know the the flower power sixties free love whatever era was also coming to an end. So this is what kind of this section. Um, represents as well and and you're exactly right like he everything looks so authentic 
Yeah, it all looks so good. And there's this great dynamic of uh, Rick Dalton's character who is not a fan of hippies or really anybody <laughs> who isn't a, a, a Caucasian male in Hollywood. He's got some hot, hot takes, uh, which is, you know, a divisive thing Tarantino does. We might talk about that a little bit more in our next segment, but... Um, I, I enjoy the way hippies are presented in this movie as a generational foil for, I think, what we're seeing nowadays, right? Millennials and boomers and the old versus the new and these kids who <laughs> nobody seems to understand but are young and living life to the fullest. And in a lot of ways, our, our character Cliff Booth can relate to that, which is why he kind of gets tangled up in this weird little subplot. But fortunately, he lives for the moment, not for what's coming tomorrow, as the hippies do. And... Uh, he seems to kind of just surf through all of that. He's a, he's an oddly Lebowski style, uh, yeah. d- Zen character in this movie, and I I really enjoy that. He's not the main character, but I I would watch a whole movie about this guy. Uh, it's great. Yeah, he could have a a, a whole uh, backstory, um, for sure. Where do we go next? Well, we should talk about Sharon Tate. Uh, yeah, we should talk about Charles Manson, who are both. Um, <sighs> utilized in a very particular way in this movie and that they're hardly in it. Uh, they're, it, it is, it is really a story about Rick Dalton and, and, and Cliff Booth and, and it, I mean, you, you fall off from there. Even Cliff doesn't get that much time complete compared to Rick. Uh, they are barely in the film. Um, they're important, but they're used very effectively. It's a very Tarantino thing, right? Like I'm going to show you this thing and then pull it, pull the camera back and you don't need to worry about that. Over, like you'll, just don't think about it that much. You know, this is going on over here. Here's a flashback to what's going on and back to this. And, and it's very focused. It's very fine, um, but it's effective. Yeah. You keep an eye on them. And you still want to know when things are kind of slowing down with the other plots where it's going. And that's when it pivots real hard and goes right back to, oh, hey, here's what's happening over here. Okay, back to Rick. And here's Cliff and back to Rick. And then here's what's going on over here. It's not it's not non-sequential like something like uh, Pulp Fiction. There is a jump in time in the film, but for the most part... It's pretty clear. In fact, if anything, there are timestamps over the whole movie. It says, hey, here's the date. Here's the time. Here's what's going on. There's a little bit of narration, I think, via Kurt Russell to the narration for this movie. Yes, yes, yes. Um, which kind of walks you through things. And like I said earlier, some editing tricks, a couple of, of, of jump cuts on occasion. Uh, at one point, he'll flash characters' names up on screen, which I'll, which feels weird in a Tarantino flick for somebody who's so expository with dialogue. Just be like, oh, here's exactly who those are. Great. Right back to the movie. Um but he's done it before, you know. He does that in his movies, weird tricks, and and I was thinking of that scene in Pulp Fiction when Uma Thurman draws that square on screen. Ah, right, uh, yeah, yeah, that that always pops out to me. So very Tarantino, but very restrained, and I thought that was really cool. Um, speaking of of other Tarantino movies, there are a number of references to a number of other properties, direct and indirect. Possibly some other characters, though not confirmed, um, that also show up in this. Um, I don't. I'm not going to spoil any of those surprises, but be on the lookout. And you uh, fans who are well versed in his filmography will uh, recognize lots of uh, references to other pro- properties. Uh, some of which I even noticed in the trailer itself, but even more so uh, in the film. So that's a lot of fun. Let's talk about our runtime. Two forty-five. Uh, too long. I thought it was fine. I didn't check my watch once, uh, as a great Roger Ebert <laughs> used to say. No bad movie is too short. No good movie is long enough. I agree. Um, there are definitely some scenes where they sag in the middle a little bit. There's the one I specifically think of is when 
uh, Brad Pitt's character, Cliff Booth, gets back to his house, uh, his, his, his trailer in the film, and he's feeding his dog. And it's like it's like a four minute scene for him to. Open it is really long. Yeah. Some dog food and put it like it's something that in any other movie would be like jump cutted through in seconds. You know. Mm-hmm. Now it does pay off. It's worth mentioning that that's not just for nothing. I think Tarantino's very nuanced that way. Like he spends time on something that's important and then brings it back around later. And there's a ton of like I said surprises in this film that really come out of nowhere. Uh, you'll find something out about a character that you've seen for an hour in the film and they'll reveal something through a piece of dialogue that you didn't know. And suddenly, Oh, you see this character in a totally different way. It's a very Tarantino thing. He's very good at that, at, at revealing information at the right time to the audience so that we experience something that the characters on screen don't. It's a trick in suspense and he's great at it. And this movie has a ton of that, but it's subtle. It's social. It's usually not things like there's a gun under the table, like in Inglorious Bastards, or uh, I, I, I'm hard pressed to think of any others. But like, right. it's 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 not anything particularly violent. Usually, it's just like, <laughs> oh hey, you didn't know this person was in a relationship with that person, or you didn't know that guy knew this person from this event. Like the connections supersede the film we're watching it's it's a bigger picture and you're just seeing a slice of mm-hmm. these people's lives and and it makes them feel so tangible and real especially setting them in a hollywood that is real for all intents and purposes with sharon tate and charlie manson um it's, it's really cool right we like you were saying he does definitely sp- take his time uh, there's a number of scenes with just usually two or three characters that will go on like I said the scene with uh is it julia butters the young girl yes um they have a special moment as, you know, a budding actor and an aging actor where they really connect and help each other. And that scene goes on for very long. And we see the the payoff uh, of it later. And there's a number of of scenes like that. And by the way, when we see finally see um, DiCaprio do the the villain role that he's shooting for the pilot, he's absolutely brilliant. Like he's, he's great. Like, he's amazing. Yeah. Like like you and he he prepares like he ha- he has tapes of his lines that have the you know the other parts so he can practice acting with him. Like he's really dedicated to the craft. And when he is on his game, he's incredible. Like, he's an incredible in, in like he's an incredible actor in real life, of course. But his character in the film is also an incredible actor. He's not someone who succeeded on by being a one trick pony. Like he has real talent. Um, and I mean, I, I think he's gonna get. I think he's gonna get uh, an Oscar nomination for this i really I, re- I think he really deserves it oh i think you know we we talked about that before hollywood loves uh you know itself yeah yeah they, they, they love that self-reflection and this is very i mean it's in the title right it's very much that i'm sure i'm sure there'll be a few nominations thrown around for this i can't wait to see the look on tarantino's face if he doesn't win um, <laughs> that's the way it goes uh let's talk about themes this movie sure, sure. is is built in the framework of a western and I think a lot of people would miss that, even though there yes. are some they're very clear and distinct Western things going on in the film. For example, Rick Dalton is a Western star. He stars in Spaghetti Westerns. He is a television star and in the film is also starring in a Western as a villain. But he's really a hero in Italy. And like there's a lot going on there. But of course, the film title Once Upon a Time In implies <laughs> uh, Western. So what do you, what did you get out of that? Is there is there a clear through line here for audiences, or is it muddled and doesn't make any sense? I mean, like I said, overall, it's a love letter to old Hollywood. <clears throat> it's about the golden age. It's about the 
the great era. It's about the end of an era, but also the start of of new of a new one. And also, you know, it's about the rose colored glasses where we often remember things way better than they were, you know, and we remember <laughs> they were like, oh, if only we could get back to that. And then you remember it wasn't really as good as you thought it was. And it's, I think that's part of what the movie's about too. It's like, you know, a lot of times you miss the golden era because you're waiting for things to get better than, than they are. So it, so it's definitely about that. Again, the rising and falling of like Rick Dalton's career of the start of Sharon Tate or the little girl played by uh, Julia Butters. Um, and then you have a, um, you know, Brad Pitt is kind of the embodiment. Oh, he is the golden age because he's not worried about the future here. He's just living in the moment. He's enjoying the moment and he's having a great time. Uh, it, it, which also ties into this idea of myths and legends. It reminded me a lot, strangely of, uh, Unforgiven, you know, which is also about the, it's about the end of the Western, the end of the gunslinger era, um, in the old West. And that's what kind of this is too. And th- that reminds me, there's a very important scene, uh, with Bruce Lee or a character. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and this, this is brilliant because Bruce Lee has a pretty incredible legend behind him, which seems to just get more and more out of control every year. You know, it was one thing in the seventies when, you, you know, you didn't have YouTube, we didn't have the internet, you know, you could, believe any anything uh but as his time has gone on on he's like at the end of the day the man was still like 130 pounds man <laughs> um so it it, it play, we have a really great scene with brad pitt and uh the guy that plays bruce lee which is again touches on a number of of these themes about myths and legends and how we re- remember things yeah I, and i think one of the like i said i, I mentioned earlier this theme of, of like generational difference right the old versus the new it's worth remembering, I think, this movie doesn't come just, just because Tarantino loves Westerns. It, it, it comes because Westerns have had an odd renaissance mm-hmm. recently in film. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, consider the superhero film. We've talked about this in the show before. Superhero movies are very much renaissance films, or renaissance films, Western films, right? Uh, the bad guy rides into town. Uh, the hero shows up saves the day and rides off into the sunset. That's every superhero movie almost, uh, unless they come in two parts like Avengers. And I think Tarantino has a lot to say about that because he is a, he is a film auteur. He is a connoisseur of this stuff. He owns a theater, which is actually featured in the film. Funny story. Keep an eye out for that, uh, where he runs 35 millimeter prints. He's very old school that way. Like he's just, he's all about it. And I think in a lot of ways, this movie has something to say about those movies, right? That they are their own beast and they're not necessarily bad, but it, you know, they, there's always a turn. There's always a time for these things to go and for something new to come in. And the Western feels a lot like that in once upon a time in Hollywood. Uh, it feels like people aren't really getting sick of them, but there's certainly a lot of them. And, and Rick Dalton's character uh, played by DiCaprio doesn't want to go to Italy to make stupid spaghetti westerns because those are they're nothing like real westerns. They just don't make them like they used to. You know, it's not the way it used to be. And there's a big theme of that. I think I think you know generations are important. I think there's a statement on the current state of Hollywood, and ultimately, I think the film has a lot to say about where Hollywood is going and why. You know, it never it never just has to be because a few executives say, "Hey, this is the way things are going to go now." We don't mm-hmm. just have to follow the same circles. Maybe maybe you can make what you want to make in Hollywood. Maybe it doesn't have to be about who you live next to or the last two movies you did, right? Maybe you can be truly your own creator. I think that's 
I think that's really what he's trying to say in this movie. I think. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, what do you think? <laughs> Sorry, I was focused on uh, this. You said something that made me think of the, the cinematography. Um, but yes, well, we haven't talked it, about that yet. We should. <laughs> it, but it, it's definitely. Yeah, it's a tribute to these great old old movies and a certain kind of movie that isn't made as much anymore. And we talk all the time that the superhero movie is in its heyday right now. It is not... People aren't sick of them yet. Um, but probably one day we will be. You know, it may take another 10, 20 years, but it that era will eventually come to an end, I think. Or the, the same way that the Western has where they died down, but they're still made every year. Um, get, getting into c- cinematography, uh, Tarantino does a great job of, of letting you feel like you're watching a, a movie that's in the 60s, a 60s quality movie. Uh, it opens with these two fake trailers of stuff that looks wild, like 60s footage of stuntmen who probably half of them died doing the things you're seeing on screen. But there's things like uh, the, the camera will get real shaky sometimes. Uh, you have really bad like cigarette burns on screen or static or really hard cuts where you know he's making you feel like you're in a, a grimy grindhouse theater of, of the 60s with some shaky film in the back. Yeah. Uh, and how, like I said earlier, the, this movie's got an energy to it and a movement, and it's not just because of the mu- music. Like, it just feels somehow like it moves quickly. Maybe it's uh, maybe it's uh, uh, Brad Pitt's stuntman driving through Hollywood, uh, you know, with the with the radio turned all the way up, or maybe it's the multitude of plots that overlap over each other um, in a way that Tarantino has said reminds him of Pulp Fiction. He said it's probably the closest to it he's done. I, I disagree, but the you know that's what he thinks. Um, but, like, it, it doesn't feel short. The shots are quick. They're almost always on tripods unless uh, it's that one. I think I think in one handheld shot in the whole movie, it's uh, a scene in the trailer when DiCaprio is, is flamethrowing a bunch of Nazis in an old movie, <laughs> which is hilarious. And a weird nod to Inglorious Bastards, his yeah, own film. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. Um, it just, it feels... I don't know, effective. Like, it, it doesn't feel like anything is wasted. It never feels like I'm watching the film and, and I'm thinking this This is... I'm never checking my watch. Like, nothing ever feels like it's a waste of time or a moment. I, I think even... Uh, speaking speaking towards, you know, generational themes, I think even something like Bruce Lee being in the movie uh, is, is a nod towards the turn of, of Hollywood in the film. And, like, they, he never wastes a second... To right. show you that, or to say something about it, and, and I've seen the movie now. It's been a few days. Like I'm still turning it over in my head and trying to figure out what exactly it all means. Um, it doesn't mean nothing. I just, I, I, it means whatever you want it to mean. I guess. Right. To I just remi- remembered uh, this about Bruce Lee, and by the way, who's played by Mike Mo, um, is the actor and stunt person. Fairly, fairly convincingly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Bruce Lee died in 1973 of uh, brain aneurysm, and there's been lots of like conspiracy theories and things about his death. But he was another person who was a rising star whose star was cut short and was essentially part of that late golden era as well. So that, that's something I just realized now, that he's one of those tragic figures as well. Mm. Well, I'm going to be honest. I'm not sure I have a whole lot more to say about this without getting into spoilers. I'm still not sure if we should do that. Uh, do you want to pick this up after our conversation, or do you think we should just kind of wrap here and let people see it themselves? I think we should should wrap here. If there is demand for a, for a spoiler cast, we can do that later. We did have I did have a couple of reviews to do a spoiler cast for Midsummer, by the way. 
Um, oh yeah. <laughs> but um, no, I think we're, I'm ready for recommendations. I think so too. One more thing before we, we finish this off here. And I think this goes in the spirit of us not spoiling the film for people um, any more than we might have. I don't think we did, but you know, uh, before the film premiered at Cannes last year, after which it received a seven-minute standing ovation, just to speak towards what people thought of it, uh, Tarantino went on stage. He begged people to avoid spoilers for the movie. Here's what he said. He said, I love cinema. You love cinema. It's a journey of discovering a story for the first time. The cast and crew have worked so hard to create something original. I only ask that everyone avoids revealing anything that would prevent later audiences from experiencing the film in the same way. Thank you. I think Andy and I are probably both inclined to agree that with that. It might be Andy's first time hearing it, but I'm sure spiritually he's all in on it. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, yeah. For sure. Uh, so with that being said, do yourselves a favor, and if you do see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, um, you know, don't spoil it for other people. Let, let, let them see it too. And with that, we should get to recommendations. Andy, would you recommend Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Yes, absolutely. This is definitely going on my top ten list, one of the best movies of the year. Is it T- Tarantino's best film? Uh Maybe it's definitely his most mature film. It shows a big leap uh, for him as a director that he's gotten away from the things he's... I mean, he still indulges a little bit, but he's gotten away from uh, the ultraviolence, gotten away from endless dialogue. I don't think we even get a long shot in this movie, which he was also f- famous for. But he, And he still does reference himself, but like his film was about deeper things, and he has more complex characters, and he's... He, he's restrained and and I really admire that. And it's got great performances all around. It's, it's about a lot, a lot of deep things. Like I said, it really takes you and makes you feel like you're in that era of, of time. Um, so I thought it was brilliant. Highly recommend it. Content warning. It does get very violent. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it wouldn't be Tarantino if it didn't get a little nuts. Um, but in the, in the best way, I, I would recommend this movie as well. Two thumbs up. Uh, unfortunately, it's not going to be for everybody. I was just telling Andy before we started the show, there were a couple women in my theater that did not particularly enjoy it. Um, it's Tarantino, you know? And and I know a lot of people may not know what that means. I'm sure a lot of general audiences don't. But if you do, you know whether or not you like his stuff. And if you even have an inkling that you might like this movie, go see it. Because it is a different kind of Tarantino. He's a lot more tamped down, but in the best way. Uh, it is totally worth your time. You will see this again on our top 10 list at the end of the year. Uh, could not recommend it enough. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, totally worth the price of admission. And with that glowing review of Quentin Tarantino <laughs> and his body of work, we should pivot to our Deadly Cinema segment. <laughs> should we? Done with this. Should we? <laughs> you know, honestly, yes. I, okay. I think it's, I, you know, it's, why not? You know, we did a short show. It's worth, it's worth going over this. Okay, sure, so sure, sure. Here's our headline, an article out of The Hollywood Reporter, an editorial. Uh, Once upon a time in Hollywood, Tarantino and when violence against women is a punchline. You know, as I said it, I realize now why this is uh, tonally, this feels tone deaf to talk about. But it's worth talking about because Tarantino is a divisive director. He just is. And he makes decisions in his movies that a lot of people, you know, it, it draws some ire on occasion. Uh, uh, I remember when he was at Cannes, uh, I think a story we reported on on the show um, somebody asked him why uh, Sharon Tate's character, played by Margot Robbie, uh, didn't get um, a whole lot of lines. And he had some goofy, nonsense, shutdown statement about it. He, he's got some interesting opinions about women in film in the past, uh, uh, among other things he does in his movies. But this is specifically about that. 
Andy, you want to dig me out of this hole here and kick us off? <laughs> sure. Uh, so again, the, the title of this article was uh, Tarantino and when violence against women is a punchline. Um, and he goes on to say that there's a lot of times in, in Tarantino films, he does write strong women characters. He does write some good women characters, but they often suffer and they often are the joke of, of at the end of a very violent joke um, from... Uh, Pulp, Pulp Fiction, Reservoir, I mean, through all his films. And uh, this this film specifically cites um, Jackie Brown, where I can't remember the uh, girl's character, but um, the character that's annoying Robert De Niro, the whole Melanie movie. Melanie, played by Bridget Fonda. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. She's an annoying the entire time on screen, and then he, he finally gets fed up and shoots her, spoilers. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, and it, it's definitely played for a laugh, and it's funny because she's been annoying the the whole movie. Um, and and but that's exactly what this this article is about: is that these kinds of jokes and these kinds of violence um, are routine towards women in his movies, and it's not necessarily the same towards men. The men aren't treated; they don't suffer quite as much. I mean, they still endure violence themselves, but it's not played for laughs. Right. Uh, I don't. I don't think often anyway this is one of those things that's tough to talk about not because it's a tough topic but because tarantino's work is so broad uh yeah like it's it <laughs> no pun intended uh it's that's that was insensitive i'm sorry uh it's it, he does a lot of different movies about a lot of different topics over a lot of different time periods it's hard to remember like I said, I, earlier I cited that, that scene in Pulp Fiction when Uma Thurman draws a square and it shows up on screen. I know there's other instances of that happening in his films. I know there's other instances of non-diegetic imagery appearing on screen uh, due to clever editing. It happens in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but I can't remember any of them. So it's tough when you talk about one specific trope across, all, uh, across his nine films and say, this is an issue. Because for every time you point out and say it is an issue, you can probably find somewhere else where it kind of isn't. That doesn't make it okay but it makes it difficult to make a case. But this article gets us on a great foot. Uh, it also it mentions Jackie Brown, of course. It also talks about uh, The Hateful Eight, our, our, our main character, Daisy Domergue, played by Jennifer Jason Lee, brilliantly, I might add, uh, is not only a nice woman in this movie, she is very early on given a black eye by our man Kurt Russell, which she, she, she sports that shiner through the whole film. Uh, it's not great, and it is for a laugh. Like it is, it is a comedy cut when it happens, and I, I might have chuckled in the theater. I'm sorry. Well, and that's uh, that's the that's the whole point. Like these are setups as they're set up as jokes. You know, right. like that's if you don't laugh, it's it's weird, and it's not that you're being insensitive. It's just it's set up to be humorous, like uh, Three Stooges humor. It just happens to all, always, or more often than not, be uh, be against a number of the women in his film. Right. And it's it's tough because <laughs> there, there's a there's a societal stigma you're playing to. Right. Like, obviously, violence against women is bad, which is why when it happens so suddenly and out of seemingly out of nowhere in a Tarantino film, it kind of seems funny sometimes uh, with with Hateful Eight. I mean, I'm, I'm a bit more of a, a precarious situation here. There's a lot going on in that movie that is oddly black comedy funny. I didn't really get Jackie Wilson. So that one I, I, I struggle to connect with. But the foil for all of this is, of course, Uma Thurman's character in Kill Bill, Volume 1 and 2, who is a, a, a very modern female action hero that nobody seems to talk about a lot. But to, for what it's worth, she does also fight, like, five different women, and there's a whole lot of women-on-women -women violence. Um, mm -hmm. So I guess you could go yeah, either way. Yeah, so that that's juxtaposed, because like I said, at, at the same time, 
uh, women are abused in the, his films, but at the same time, they are also kind of fetishized in a, in a weird way. Like uh, Kill Bill is an excellent um, example of that. Like I said, the bride is the main character. She also suffers like horrific uh, violence at the beginning of the film. Um, and then, like I said, you do have these kind of badass women uh, fighting each other throughout the whole film. And that's kind of, we see the peak of that in uh, Death Proof, where we have, uh, that's the uh, stuntman kind of B-horror movie uh, with four women. And in the beginning, these these four women uh, all get killed by Kurt Russell's character in this horrific crash. And then he kind of tries to recreate, he goes to stalk other women and they kind of turn the tables on him. So it's... It's empowering, but at the same time, you slaughtered four women to get there. So it's like, uh, like I see, like you're trying, you're trying to do the right thing. You're trying to empower, but you're kind of going about it the wrong way. Right. Uh, Another point mentioned in here is men are not seen in the same way as women uh, in their grief on screen. Uh, There's a couple instances that are listed here. And one I can think of that I just remembered, which is probably speaking towards this whole problem, but... A guy gets shot in a Tarantino film. It's agony on screen, right? He's, he's Tim Roth bleeding out in the back of the car at the beginning of Reservoir Dogs. Or he's Tim Roth throughout all of Reservoir <laughs> Dogs. Uh, or, you know, he gets... He's... he's uh, uh, What's his character in, in Hateful Eight? who gets shot in that... Samuel Jackson, right? Gets shot in the groin. Yeah. And... and is is bleeding out the movie and and crying in pain, whereas a woman gets shot and she's immediately off screen. Uh, the, the the point cited here is when four of Daisy Domergue's men in the flashback scene in the Hateful Eight shoot three unsuspecting women. Two of them are given small moments to beg for their lives. One of them is shot with an explosion of candy in front of her. Which again, I shouldn't laugh, but like it's a comedy shot. Like that that's something out of three stooges. Like it really is. I also think of that scene in uh, uh, Django Unchained when that woman, uh, I forget what's going on, but Django's standing on the stairs and he shoots her and she flies sideways backwards off this off the screen in the most like goofy looking, I, I guess there's a point to be made. I, I, I guess there is, um, but really what this comes down to for me, uh, all of this is like, can you separate, not to say separate the art from the artist, but really, can you separate the art from what you perceive to be the world? And is that okay, right? Can can you watch a movie like this and say, well, it doesn't hold up to the standards I have, but that's not what it's supposed to be doing, right? Right. And, or is and, it? And what this, what this art, the whole kind of where this article goes to at the end is that is this problematic in helping to normalize violence against women, which is a big societal problem. Um, and that's, that's, that doesn't have any, an easy answer, but I, I think that's definitely something to, th- to think about. And if it, it definitely, like I said, he writes strong characters, but he also abuses the women a lot more than the men. So that's definitely happened. And, and right. what, what that means for him as a director, um, I'm not sure. That's not an easy answer, but it's it's there. I see. I do agree that those things are there and that that is happening. The results and where he goes from here, um, I'm not sure. And there's you know there's there's a footnote here in this article that points out that you know it's it's probably not okay to glorify this kind of thing. Uh, and I agree. Obviously, I do. Um, I feel the same way about the violence towards everybody in Tarantino films. None of it's good. Like violence in Tarantino films is bad always. It, it is never. There are no heroes in these stories usually. Um, mm-hmm. 
and that's important to remember and 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 i agree um but i i think that among other reasons is the reasons people avoid tarantino films some do and that's okay you're allowed to not watch the things that you don't agree like that's totally okay that's totally okay there are people out there who would not like once upon a time in hollywood but um i don't i i i don't i don't know andy do it is, is there a good <laughs> i don't know no i don't know where we go from here other than uh that this is uh this is a trend in his film uh across his whole filmography once upon a time in hollywood is no different as you'll see when you see the film um so it's just, it's just something that that has been noticed and could potentially be problematic yeah. so we'll, so we'll we'll see where he goes from here he's got allegedly one film to go as a yeah, one film to go as a a brief footnote here uh alongside that argument at the beginning that a, that a reporter asked him about with Sharon Tate not getting many lines. Sharon Tate is put on the biggest pedestal in this film. She is she is an angel in this movie. She is innocent and nice and wonderful and the camera's never in her face and it never bothers her. Like, I think... I, I genuinely think Quentin Tarantino looks at her, who was a real person. Sharon Tate was a real person who lived and died in a horrible fashion. I, I think he really respects her. He features a lot of her films in this movie, or at least one of them, uh, but a lot of her on-screen stuff. Um, you know, I, I, I think he does an okay job of paying tribute to her uh, without being any kind of derogatory or horrible. Um Yes. Other women in the film, you know, I uh, take it or leave it, I guess. Uh, you got to watch the movie and find out. But yeah, I, I will say about um, the Sharon Tate character, because a lot of people have pointed that out that, you know, she she's in here. She doesn't have any lines. Um, and that's true. But, I, you know, I will defend this because film is a visual medium and Sharon Tate's character and her story is told through her actions, through her scenes that don't have dialogue. You don't need them to portray the character as he is attempting to portray her. He is trying to portray an idealized version of this person. Right, in, in a fairly respectful manner, I think. And, and and while I'm at it, while I'm speaking of uh, strong women characters in Tarantino films, there is a um, wife in this film, wife of Kurt Russell's character, Russ, who is Australian, I think, and she is freaking hilarious. So keep mm-hmm. an eye out for her. She's great. I uh, loved her. Uh, with that, we should probably wrap the show, right? Short episode this week, but I feel okay about it. Not that short, actually. Only about 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, just a whole lot of winding conversation about Quentin Tarantino. Uh, if you enjoyed the show, if you thought Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was pretty good, or maybe if you weren't so into it, uh, drop us an email at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. Check out our website, offscriptfilmreview.com. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all the social media stuff. We're over there. We're doing all that stuff. And if you enjoyed the show, if you liked it, if you want to hear more of it, just subscribe. That's the biggest thing. Just throw a subscribe at us and you have no idea how much that means. You want to go for extra credit, rate and review. But that's like a whole other thing. We'll talk about that next time. All right. For now, you just worry <laughs> about subscribing and we'll get around to it. You can rate and review if you're you know going for extra credit or anything. But next week, we're going to be seeing two films, one Netflix exclusive. The movies are Hobbs and Shaw which is very exciting. The um, Fast and the Furious presents yes, Hobbs and the Shaw. The Fast and the Furious presents Hobbs and Shaw, uh, the boldest of bold cinema. Keep an eye out for that on our top 10 list. We're also going to take a look at a Netflix film called Red Sea Diving Resort that before seeing this outline like an hour and a half ago, I'd never heard of. So this is an Andy <laughs> joint all the way. Um, Andy, what is, what is Red Sea Diving Resort about? Um, so this is a Netflix film uh, featuring uh, Chris Evans. Um, it reminds it 
it's a it's a rescue film uh it's about these uh i don't know if they're american soldiers but they're trying to rescue these people who are on like basically on the verge of genocide if they don't get them out of like this what looks to be un- underdeveloped country um it's a rescue movie i don't know much about it it's on netflix it's it comes out on wednesday stars chris evans yeah captain america himself it's on wednesday we're gonna watch and take a look at it and let you know if it's worth your time from all of us here at off script the home of bold cinema i'm zach lewis and i'm dr draper thanks for listening